This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, uh, Good Faith Fam, okay, so you know how in the original Ninja Turtles movie, the turtles are fighting Shredder, and stick with me here, I promise this is a payoff. They're fighting Shredder, and he beats them all one by one because they're not good enough. But then Master Splinter shows up, and he finally defeats Shredder. Okay, so podcast-wise, I'm the equivalent of the Turtles, but I'm actually now in the presence of a true Master Splinter. She's the creator and host of the amazing podcast on literature, philosophy, and theology, Sacred and Profane Love, which I absolutely love. It's so good. I'm genuinely jealous of it. Uh, she's an amazing author, professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and so much more. She's the amazing Jennifer Frey, and we're going to talk about literature, faith, and lots more. But first, uh, let's set this bad boy up. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about the book of Genesis the last few weeks, and we're up to probably my favorite verse in the whole thing. Uh, Rebecca is pregnant with twins who will eventually become uh, Jacob and Esau, and the brothers uh, who are part of the story, they seem destined to be at eternal loggerheads, and yet they somehow still remain family. And anyway, when God proclaims the nature of their relationship to Rebecca, the Bible tells us the elder shall serve the younger, or at least that's what all the English translations say. What the Hebrew says is virav ya'avod sa'ir, which syntactically speaking can equally mean both the elder shall serve the younger and the younger shall serve the elder. It can literally mean both. And the ambiguity is even more striking when you read the comment on this verse by the medieval Jewish exegete Rabbi David Kimchi, affectionately known as Radak, who, by the way, ended up becoming super beloved by the Christian Hebraists of the Renaissance. But anyway, Radak points out that the Bible could easily have cleared up the ambiguity by just using the accusative particle et, which is the most common word in the entire Bible, which would have indicated which was the subject and which was the object of the sentence, but it doesn't. Why not? And I think the answer lies in recognizing that this genre, an oracle, which is well known to us from Greek myth and other traditions, is actually extremely uncommon in the Bible. It almost never appears. This really is like the one place. Contrary to popular perception, prophecy in the Bible is not really about predicting the future. And in fact, the one biblical book that really does get into trying to predict the future, the book of Daniel, is conspicuously not grouped in with the other biblical prophetic books. Rabbinic tradition, in fact, explicitly did not consider it to be prophecy at all. Biblical prophecy is not a predictive genre, it's a moral genre. It's not prognostication, it's social, national, cultural, and theological critique. Now, what's the ultimate difference between prediction and biblical prophecy? It's that prediction is about being correct, but prophecy is about being virtuous. And those two things, while they can overlap, are very different. So to express correct things, your best tool is math. One plus one equals two and so forth. But to express things that are virtuous with all the richness and human complexity that entails, you want stories, you want narrative. So ultimately, what Genesis is doing here by making the oracle about Jacob and Esau deliberately and unavoidably ambiguous is actually being playful. And in so doing, making a profound point. We're about to read one of the most morally complex stories in the history of world literature, one whose echoes will be heard throughout the rest of the Bible and whose reverberations are going to be felt throughout 
the hallways of history. And you think the Bible's going to give the whole thing away right at the beginning with like a here's how it ends style spoiler? Yeah, no. In other words, this is the Bible's way of saying, buckle up. You're about to read a doozy of a story that's going to force you again and again and again to reassess your understanding of this very first line. So ultimately, the line is a tribute to the power of story, the power of great literature, of great poetry, of great drama to shape our sense of who we are, our place in the world, our relationship with God, our families, our fellow human beings. And if we wish to serve God and bring goodness to the world, we would be well served by exploring this piece or that piece of the human experience. So to unpack all of this, to talk about the potency of story, literature, artistry, and helping us understand God's world, I brought on the literal expert on the topic. She's the host of the extremely popular and wildly awesome Sacred and Profane Love podcast and a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. She's my friend, Jennifer Frey. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh. All right. You need to be my professional hype man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm completely unworthy of that introduction, but I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. I just want to be the flavor flave of sacred and profane love. That's like my ambition. I'm so excited. Okay. So before we get to the topics that we want to talk about, I want to start with you. The prevailing narrative, I suppose, about contemporary America is that it participates in the same kind of European trend of relentless, inevitable secularization and just kind of lags a bit behind. So the rise of nuns, right, N-O-N-E-S, people who subscribe to no faith tradition at all in America today is precisely what you would expect, according to this theory. Now, the thesis comes along with a whole host of, I think, just like incorrect assumptions about the people it's describing, and it also ignores the ebbs and flows of American religiosity in general since at least the 18th century. But even if you take it at face value, you are an example of someone who went in the opposite direction. You went from a nun, essentially, to a to becoming a Catholic, and you actually made this choice as a teenager. So why choose religion in an age like this? Well, it's a long story, but to shorten it up, you know, I I went to university. By the way, really, 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 really quickly before yes. you get into it, my favorite thing is I watched like a really, I, in preparing for the podcast, I watched a really old interview that you did on this. I think it's old, but the caption under your name is like, Jennifer Frey, former atheist. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was Catholic TV. That was um, the journey home. It was home. great. <laughs> yeah, and it really was kind of a journey home because I had to like go back to Ohio to record that. But yeah, so I was raised in a secular house and I, whatever, I mean, I was a pretty committed atheist by the time I was like 15 or 16. I mean, I just didn't really think about it for a long time. And then I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I'm definitely an atheist. And then I went to university. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and I started taking philosophy and my first philosophy professor actually was an Orthodox Jew and he was the smartest person I'd ever met in my life. And he was extremely religious and I, it just was so jarring to me. You know, here was a guy who went to Balliol college, Oxford and got his PhD at Harvard, which is like one of the best, you know, most storied philosophy departments in the world And he's clearly, you know, just so much smarter than me. And he believes in God. And I couldn't, I just, it just really like rattled me. And I, (laughs) I just remember at some point, like being in his office and kind of like, just being like, well, you know, 
this like religious thing. That's like cultural, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like about your identity, right? And he sort of looked at me and he was like, well, I believe in God. And I was like, I don't get it. Like, I don't know how. And anyway, he's a, he's a wonderful man. And I ended up babysitting his kids for a while. And anyway, we, we ended up becoming friends, but this was just sort of like the first instance of, you know, just confronting someone who was putting pressure against all of my prejudices and all of my preconceptions. And anyway, the further that I got along with philosophy, uh, the more that I realized that I actually didn't, like none of my beliefs were mine, really. You know, like I couldn't defend any of them. And everything that I sort of held dear, I realized was just a kind of tenuous house of cards. And that happens to you if you're really doing philosophy, I think. And so I kind of reopened the God question. <laughs> and I spent uh, a, a truly ridiculous amount of time, like locked away in the library. Anyway, to make a long story short, I came out of it a Catholic, which was very surprising to everyone, but especially me. Uh, and I'm still a Catholic. So obviously it's a, it's a more complicated, interesting story. And I've, and I've told versions of the story and you can find them online, but I mean, that's, that's the basic account. And if you, I, I mean, if people are interested in sort of like the two main thinkers, uh, that led me down this path, it was Augustine and Aquinas, like, like hands down, like those were the two, but it, but it wasn't an easy path. So for me, faith was, was a hard, a hard fought sort of battle. One of the really interesting things for me about the Western intellectual tradition, speaking of Aquinas, like which since, you know, the medieval period is in large part a story about Christian philosophers, is that at first I personally always encountered this tradition as an outsider, right? So probably the best example is Thomas Aquinas, whom I first discovered through the thought of the, you know, great American Orthodox Jewish theologian Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik of the 20th century. And I first took Aquinas seriously because Rabbi Soloveitchik took him seriously. Now, I eventually went on to read Aquinas like inside, as it were, but I always felt encountering him as an outsider lent me like a valuable perspective. And in fact, it always excited me to think of Aquinas as doing the same thing, right? Since he considered one of his indispensable thought partners to be the work of Maimonides from the Jewish tradition. So he encountered my tradition as an outsider, just as I encountered him. Right. Now, in your case, it's not exactly the same since you end up converting to Catholicism, but still you bring an outsider's perspective to that kind of Christian intellectual perspective. And I wonder how that's been valuable to you as you engage with someone like an Aquinas. Well, I mean, I think the fact that I spent, I don't know, my misspent youth as an atheist, I guess, it, it helps me understand certain lines of resistance to thinking about faith. And I also think that I understand pretty well some of the basic confusions that people have about what and, and obviously Christians Christians disagree about what faith is. If if you read Kierkegaard, you're gonna get a radically fideistic account, whereas Aquinas thinks that faith is a virtue that perfects your intellect, right? So I mean, people disagree about these things, but I think that what I, what I kind of found, a bit, what, to be honest, I was just so surprised by how by how much gravitas this intellectual tradition had, and that goes. I mean that that goes beyond 
the Christian intellectual tradition, and and I think it goes back to you know the Hebrew Bible. And I mean, wh- one thing that ultimately like was really appealing to me about Catholicism was that I thought it was super Jewish in lots of ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, by the way, there, there there's like a, there's a really famous Jewish joke about the kid, like Orthodox Jewish kid, who's just really really poor at math. And parents get him a tutor, nothing. The resource room, nothing. Finally, they hear about the Catholic school down the block that's real has a really, really good math program. They're like, all right, listen, we have no choice. The kid's got to be good at math. So they send the kid to the Catholic school and he comes home. He gets 100 on the first test, 100 on the second test. The parents are like, what's going on? All of a sudden, you're like a math whiz. He's like, look, I went to this place. I saw the guy nailed to the plus sign in front of the school. I figured they meant business. So, uh, you know. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah. So anyway, I think for me, it was just about kind of understanding better where a lot of people are coming from and also having a really good appreciation for just how ignorant people are, because I used to be that ignorant. And so it doesn't like offend or annoy me. The only thing that really offends or annoys me is when people uh, put on airs as if they're not ignorant, when they're completely ignorant about, you say, anything really that Catholics believe. Or, or the Jews believe. I mean, it's just sort of like this really disdainful attitude towards religion that's totally based in ignorance. Um, I think that for some people, you can point out that it's based in ignorance and you can get somewhere with those people. But for other people, it's like you're not going to get anywhere with them. And I get incredibly frustrated with the latter group. And I have a lot of sympathy for the former group because I used to be in them. I find in the Jewish community, I suppose it would be called outreach, you know, like sort of trying to reach either, you know, quote unquote, lapsed Jews or, you know, or sort of Jews who who are, as you put it earlier, you know, cultural as opposed to kind of buying into the full scope of peoplehood, which includes religion and doctrine and so forth. A staple of that genre is like proofs for God. Mm-hmm. And I've often described myself on this podcast as a very proud fundamentalist, which I totally am. Like I'm one of those Orthodox Jews you see about on TV. Um, but I've always found this genre kind of like fairly uncompelling. But it has a really long and storied tradition, right? Sort of like the proofs, the proofs for God genre. But there's another genre that's kind of much less popular. But you often, you know, as we are wont to do in this podcast, speak to smart people who chose religion. You're typically not getting kind of, you know, people who are who see the argument from design on, uh, you know, on like an old GeoCities website, and they're like, "That's how I made my decision." You're typically getting people who are you know, who are reading Augustine or Aquinas carefully, or they're reading Alistair McIntyre, or they're reading something that is compelling in other ways. So what is it, what is it about sort of the, either the natural reason tradition or the, or the virtue ethics tradition that you find compelling precisely as, uh, as a spur towards religiosity? Well, I do believe in, you know, natural theology. So, natural theology being sort of uh, what we can know, not through revelation or the articles of faith, but just through thinking about things, you know, for example, what we can infer from effect to cause and, and things like this. And of course, I'm, I'm teaching an upper level class on the Summa Theologiae right now. And we begin, right, with the treatise on the one God, and what's the second question in the Summa? It's the five ways. It's the famous five proofs for the existence of God. And what's super interesting about the Summa is that the first question of the Summa is on so-called sacra doctrina, 
right? Uh, I think the best the the best translation of that is holy teaching. And it, and it sort of says, well, you know, is holy teaching a science? Is holy teaching wisdom? The answer to both is yes. Um, yes. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, it's an organized body. Like hard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Not surprisingly, yes. But not only right. is it wisdom, but it's the wisdom surpassing all, you know, wisdom. And it is a science. It is an organized body of knowledge. But its first principles come from revelation, right? They're given so it's a, it's a matter of making sense of God's own self-knowledge as revealed through scripture. And so, so you're like, oh, okay, right. That's, you know, theology. And then you get to question two and it's like, here are five proofs for the existence of God using reason alone. And you're like, huh, that wasn't what I was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> like given everything you just said. Um, but but look, I'm actually a huge fan of the five ways, but but I'm not a huge fan of sort of the theology bros out there who who kind of just drag them out of their context and just kind of use them as sort of like a parlor trick. Like, well, let me show you. I think it doesn't work that way. I mean, one, because the the five ways just can't really be understood apart from the metaphysics underlying them. I mean, if you if, if if you come to the first two ways, right, with a contemporary notion of cause, it just looks like a stupid argument, right? But that but that's not that's not Aquinas's notion of cause, right? And then similarly, if you come to the third way, not appreciating Aquinas's distinction between essence and existence, like you're going to get nowhere with it. I mean, so. We can't just decontextualize these arguments and bring them out and be like, oh, well, see, God exists. I don't think it works that way. Nevertheless, I do think that they have a place in, uh, you know, soccer doctrina, right? Because it just, it sort of establishes that, like, we have a real topic here, you know? I mean, it doesn't establish much. That's the other thing is people misunderstand what the five ways show. Right. And, um, you know, I really like Dennis Turner's line on this. Uh, he was a great scholar at Yale. I mean, he, he just basically said, well, like they tell you less about God, you know, and they tell you more about everything that's not God, namely that it's created. Right. And, and like, what is that? That means something very unique and special for St. Thomas, but it doesn't prove for example, that the God of Abraham and Isaac exists or the God of the Trinity. I mean, it definitely is not going to prove that. So I don't really know how anyone gets to that from faith because it might as well be Aristotle's God for all you know. And like the truth is that I think is is in many ways like the great project of our age is kind of stating plainly and confidently that actually the case for believing in a God is really, really, really strong, yes. almost like un almost unavoidable when you get down to it. It's pretty lazy to not believe in a God. Yes. Now, once we're there, then we can then we'll then we can talk about Abraham and Isaac, right? <laughs> but <laughs> and I love that you use a God, right? Because that's how they all end, you know. And this is what all people call a God. It's basically right. like <laughs> what gets proved by the five ways, and yes, that's right. not really the God of faith, but it's like a starting point. And it's a starting point from reason, which is incredibly important to, at least to the Catholic faith, 
just given how we understand the connection between faith and reason and grace and nature, right? You know, that faith and reason are are integrated. They're not in any way opposed, right? Faith perfects reason. I mean, that would be the way that, that Aquinas puts it. And I think that something that I find incredibly beautiful about Thomism in particular, incredibly beautiful and appealing, is that it recognizes the limits of philosophy. And I think that, and I, of course, I'm a philosopher. I love philosophy. I think philosophy literally like saved my life, but it's limited. And the thing that philosophy ultimately gave me was a sense of its own limits. And it kind of points you to, to the necessity of, of something that's higher than it, right? That there is a kind of wisdom above all wisdom and that this involves receiving some things rather than just trying to figure it all out based on what you have. I've always been drawn to the great side characters in literature, like the loyal follower, the devoted friend. And sometimes these figures are tragic, like Jonathan in the Bible, right? He's caught between his love for his friend David and the manic, often cruel behavior of King, his father, King Saul. Um, other times they're comedic, Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, or even Falstaff, right? Though in, in you know in the Henriad plays, that story doesn't have a totally happy ending. And of course, a, a genre that does this character really well is the epic fantasy genre, right? Like Reaper Cheap to Prince Caspian and C.S. Lewis, Sam Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But one thing I've noticed, and this is totally anecdotal, though I think there is something to it, is that contemporary audiences, particularly English-speaking audiences are and American audiences, are really drawn to these characters. Like, Sam Gamgee was in many ways, like, the standout, you know, cinematic, you know, character in the cinematic portrayal of Lord of the Rings. And they often end up as fan favorites. Now, I feel like you wouldn't expect that given an American culture of autonomy and independence, right? Like, why would Tonto work as a specifically American TV icon? So why do Americans like these characters? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I don't, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. I think, <laughs> sorry, here I am just like not being insightful at all. Oh, my God. I know it's coming. So I'm just, yeah, I'm bracing just myself. Just wait right? patiently. <laughs> I hope you have a few hours. But my favorite moment in the history of this podcast is when I asked a question like this to Zohar Atkins and he's like, I have no good answer. And then proceeded to give like the best answer in the history of the pod. So. <laughs> oh, great. Well, yeah, that's not going to happen right now. I know it's going to, ha- I know it's going to happen oh now. So. <laughs> You're killing me, Ari. Okay. Um. <laughs> Yeah, why do why do people like these these kind of uh, sidekicks? I mean, uh, are we maybe not as independent as we like to think of ourselves? You know? Oh well, we're definitely not, and and that may be an entry point for me to say something that's possibly insightful, although not about this tan- it's sort of tangential. But I mean, look, my view about great literature, right? So not just any literature, but great literature, is that it that it is truth revealing right? You know, that the basis of art is truth, that art is cognition in another mode, a very different mode from the philosophical mode, a very different mode, even from the theological mode. But its its main job is to me, is to communicate truth. So that's something that I am committed to, but it does it according to its form, right? So the way that a painting 
uh, would communicate truth is not the same as the way that a novel would communicate the truth is right. Not the same way that a movie would do it, et cetera. So it just depends on the sort of art form, but that's like, that's the essence of art. And so I've thought more about literary art than any of these other forms. And I think that, you know, the power of great literature is that it brings us in the, in the good case. And of course you have to be a good reader, right? There's nothing magical about a book. You have to be a good reader, but the power of it is that it has this potential to bring you to greater self-knowledge, right? To reveal something to you about yourself, about the world, about humanity, right? That you didn't see or you didn't see quite so clearly, or maybe you knew in an abstract way, but now you see it in the particular concrete, more powerful way that happens in story. And this is why to me, literature is so necessary for moral philosophy in particular, right? If I'm talking about what's good or bad in human life or what's virtuous or what's vicious or what is human flourishing, right? The danger is that you get kind of lost in generalities and abstractions and you don't pay attention to the particular circumstances of actual human lives. But that's what you see in a novel, right? What you see is the way that a particular vice can manifest itself in a particular life in particular circumstances and the way that it you see it destroy not just the person, but the person, right? The person and their environment. And it becomes much more compelling and powerful than the sorts of arguments that you get about vice in, say, the disputed questions on evil or the Summa Theologia, or even in the Nicomachean Ethics or the Republic or any of these kind of works of, you know, what I like to call the perennial philosophy. A lot of times those arguments don't move people, right? But read Madame Bovary and you just see it. You see it so clearly, right? And so I think there's there's just this kind of power in literature and narrative that has so much potential, not just to bring you to a kind of self-knowledge, that's sort of like a first step, a, a necessary first step, but also to like change you, right? On, on some level. I mean, I'm not claiming that, you know, you read Flaubert and like, you're going to be a good person. Um, I wish that were true because I've read it a lot. So I would be like a saint <laughs> by this point and I'm not, but it does have this same for me, but with Seinfeld instead of Flaubert. Oh, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can we can save that conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it it has this potential to train your imagination, right? Which is a more it's your imagination isn't at the level of like propositions or judgments. It's at a more like kind of perceptual level, but as Aristotle says, right? The level of action, that is the level of perception, right? And and we all know, like you don't have to read Aristotle to know that you might have these general judgments about what's good or bad and you might not 
like, and what you actually do might not reflect them because what you actually do reflects what you're seeing in the circumstances, right? And so that kind of moral perception, right? That has so much to, and that moral perception, which is involved in our actual deliberation and action, that is, now we're talking about a kind of lower level, right? We're talking about the particular. And so again, you can see the limits of philosophy, right? I mean, I can give you a bunch of arguments and I can show you that the arguments are good, but you're not going to leave my class, you know, being equipped now to go out and be courageous, right? It's a it's a good starting point. It's a first step, but you need to you you need to be on that level of of particularity. And that to me is part of the transformative power of literature, right? This kind of effects that it has on our imagination and our sort of like the effects that it has in terms of how we can imagine then our own futures, right? I mean, we, when, when you read literature, you have this very strong imaginative connection with these characters. And, and this too, I think, changes your perception over time. You know, taking up the perspective of Emma Bovary and sort of seeing how things ended up being such a disaster. If you did it correctly, it, sh- it, it should have lasting effects on you. Again, I'm not saying it's going to take you all the way to virtue. Unfortunately, I believe in original sin. I think it's hard for us to be good. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's this, it's like a crucial aid. But I also think just speaking now as a philosopher, as someone who's writing essays and doing theory, again, I think you have to go back to the particularities of human life. And great literature is, is so key for that. So for me, that's, that's the interest. Um, and, 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 and I could reiterate the arguments in a different way for theology, right? Although it's more complicated for theology because part of the literary canon, well, not part of, but like the center of it is of course the Bible, which I think of as literature. I suspect you do as well, but I don't want to say that for you. No, that was actually precisely where I was going. I knew this would end up being such a legendary answer. That absolutely was beautiful. And it, and it, it really it was such a perfect expression of exactly how I think about what the Hebrew Bible is doing, which is a work I obviously feel very close to. It's so story-centric. And in fact, it doesn't just comprise great narratives. Uniquely in the ancient Near East, it embeds law in narrative. And law actually is a narrative frame. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the ancient in the ancient world. I mean, certainly not in the ancient Near East, really nowhere else in the ancient world. And my grandfather, who was a, a, a phenomenal orator, has this wonderful quote in a sermon, I think from like the 50s, where he attributes this quote to George Footmore from Harvard, speaking of Harvard. I haven't been able to find it in George Footmore, but there it is. He says, as the eminent Harvard historian uh, George Footmore once said, the difference between philosophy and religion is that religion does something about it. And the, you know, it's pithy and, you know, he could, he's, you know, making a, a larger point. But I think the difference between doing something about it and not doing something about it cashes out oftentimes in story and narrative. Like that's where the work of doing something about it so often takes place. Like knowing how to do something about it is where you start, but actually doing something about it, that takes place in narrative. Actually, one thing that what you said just now provoked me to think was, 
I wonder if that's why the side character is so compelling, precisely in a culture that's so, you know, prides itself on its independence. Like, we all... We all like to say and we imagine ourselves as the Prince Caspian, as the Bilbo, as the Prince Hal in, you know, in the Henriad, um, as the Don Quixote. I mean, we don't like to think of ourselves as Don Quixote, but you know what I mean. It's like the King David, right? <laughs> and yet, it's precisely because we actually don't necessarily want to be those characters. We actually yearn. We're actually yearning for for relationships of dependence. And so we're fascinated by those side characters precisely because in, in doing the work of actually living, we find out that, in fact, what we want is not kind of the first principle appealing independence. What we want is the real life thick dependence of a friendship between, a, you know, between a Prince Caspian and a Reaper Jeep, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, again, and I mean, the pagans understood that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, I mean, sometimes I'm like, if we could just go back to being actual pagans, like it would be such an improvement. <laughs> well, because then we could, you know, because then we, we'd be closer to where we want yes. them to get. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So, no, of course. It's like, it's like they, you know, like they don't make heretics like they used to anymore. Like heretics used to be so learned and brilliant and genius and like steeped in tradition. Now they're just like, you know, shoot posters on Twitter. I know. <laughs> I know. Man, I got to get off Twitter. Oh, You're such a great presence on Twitter, though. You Please never leave. That was my next question to you, because you're one of my legit favorite follows on Twitter, and you're an absolute legend there. If you ever leave, I mean, I, not even Elon Musk's $8 a month for a blue check could keep me on. <laughs> but I, my question for you is, and I, I talked about this with David Perel on a, on a recent podcast, what is it about the Twitter genre? Like, there are some people who... Twitter as a genre clearly doesn't matter to them, even if they're popular on Twitter. So like the kind of person who's posting a tweet thread that's just full of like, you know, it's like one sentence that takes up three tweets and you just use the tweets like the sentence will end randomly in the middle of a tweet and you just pick it up with the next word of the next tweet. So like you don't care about the actual genre, but someone like you and really all of the, my favorite people to follow on Twitter are people who actually take the genre seriously. Like you complete a thought in, you know, 247 characters. W what is it about Twitter as a genre that actually shapes how you think or helps you express things you otherwise wouldn't be able to express? Oh, Lord. I mean, I, I have to say that lately I'm not enjoying Twitter so much. And and <laughs> I, th I, I think it's because I, I, I wasn't on Twitter very much over the summer and I got put in Twitter jail for a week. I don't know if you remember that. I got I do. It was one of the biggest scandals yeah, of the summer. I got put in Twitter jail for saying that, you know, nothing would change liturgically in the church until like boomers just died off, which I wasn't like it just, to me it was just like a statement of fact. I mean, but I guess Someone somewhere took it as a death threat. Like I was going to. That sounds like a Monty Python version of what you would get put in Twitter jail for. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to go murder my parents, you know, I mean, it's just yeah, insane. Right. <laughs> and what I found is ever, once I got out of Twitter jail, so something just got completely messed up with the algorithm and like the people I liked, I never saw their stuff anymore. And I lost a, a ton of followers 
And I just was kind of like, okay, I don't really know what's going on anymore. And I've never managed to reconfigure the algorithm in such a way that like, it's fun for me. So like, I never really see your tweets. Sometimes I have to just go searching for them. I know, I know. (laughs) It's insane. I should, I should like click the little bell. I'm going to go do that as soon as I. Gotta have a talk with Elon about this. This is unacceptable. I know. You (laughs) need to get him on the pod. It would be wild. For real. But, um, (laughs) You know, I try to be a good actor on Twitter. It Obviously, everyone on Twitter will make mistakes, and I've made mistakes on Twitter. But the thing about Twitter is that no matter how disciplined or good you try to be, no matter how innocuous or lighthearted a tweet you have, there's just always going to be some jerk that has to just, <laughs> you know, that just has to be a jerk. And uh, it really, yeah, it's, it really grinds on me, but um, I I don't have a philosophy of tweeting, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm glad it seems like I do. You know, I I try to be mindful that there are people who look up to me, whether they should or not. And you know, I I try to like be helpful, but lately I just have to say it hasn't been that much fun. So I don't know how much longer I'm gonna hang around. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll just hang around for you. This is very sad news to me. I really hope I can convince you otherwise. <laughs> but I do want it to be fun for you. Like you shouldn't you shouldn't be a martyr for uh for our enjoyment on Twitter, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't, you know, I don't I haven't really been canceled. Well, speaking of Twitter controversies by the way, so the British Prime Minister is officially, as I now know, supposed to advise the British monarch on ecclesiastical appointments for the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Now, just after the most recent round of British prime ministerial reshuffling, I feel like there's like a fancy British word for what just happened that, you know, like reflobulating. So after the most recent reflobulation, Jason Locke tweeted, although Rishi Sunak is a Hindu, he will still be able to advise the king on ecclesiastical appointments. Only Jews and Roman Catholics are barred from doing so by statute. Okay, so on this very podcast episode, we officially have here a quorum of the excluded. So, <laughs> so what is England missing out on? Like, why? What does English society have to learn from us? Why? Why should they be sad that this is that they're missing out on us? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you know, anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism is sad. It's it's a sad posture in life. <laughs> Uh, obviously, you know, anti-Catholicism is like a, a, a way of life in the UK. Like they have, you know, like Guy Fox Day is coming up. It's just like, <laughs> it's literally just an anti-Catholic holiday. So, you know, I, 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 I guess I don't care, but, um. I'm from the Eric Cartman school of Columbus Day, which is in 1492, Columbus got us a day off skew. So, <laughs> you know. Well, see, I'm, I'm Italian-American, so I just, I'm just like, that's like our one day? Like. That's our day. We, we literally were like, oh, well, he's Italian, kind of. Right. And he's great. And now we're like, maybe he's not great, but he's our guy. Just right. leave him alone. <laughs> Anyway, what are they missing out? Well, I mean, obviously they're missing out on wisdom. But but also, I mean, don't get me started on Anglicanism. I'll 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 lose <laughs> half my friends. Let's just say that I really don't think it's a good system, right? To have the monarch in charge of of your church. It seems like a seems like a bad system. Uh seems like maybe they could change that. 
it's best to have a, a pontiff in, in my opinion. I mean, look, you've got to have, you got to, I mean, we, we probably disagree about this, but I just think when it comes to faith, when it comes to dogma, you just, you have to have some kind of authoritarian structure that is just like, this is, this is the way we're going here. Otherwise you just get, well, I mean, I mean, you can look at Protestantism. I don't know how many sects there are, but there are quite a few. And when it comes to interpreting sacred scripture, there has to be a kind of final arbiter. Um, And again, when it comes to ecclesiastical appointments and things like this, yeah, you have to have some kind of ultimate authority. And, you know, we have that. And, And that, to me, I mean, I think there's wisdom in that. Obviously, that's not a view that many people are going to take. But actually for me, it was one reason why I became Catholic, right? I mean, as, as I just thought, you have to have some kind of ultimate way of working this stuff out. Otherwise, it's just going to be endless schism. And, and we just know that we know that that's not what Christ wanted. So you got you to gotta have an authority. Um, and people will say that's authoritarian. And I'm like, well, yes. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so it's so funny because it, it reminds me of Milton. You know, Milton's like the great Republican theorist, and in *In Paradise Lost*, when he portrays the the rebellion against God, all of the best arguments in favor of liberty that he marshals in favor of republics in all of his political works, he has in *Paradise Lost*. He just puts them in the mouth of Lucifer. Right. So, right. I know. You know, and so like you know, so the the argument against him who's accidentally of the party of Satan, but the truth is. The all the arguments for liberty and republicanism are really, really good, just not in religion. Right, right. <laughs> Although, like as an outsider to the Church of England, in which I, I, you know, I don't have a stake, obviously. But the really interesting thing is the kind of like gentle Erastianism that pervades in the United Kingdom, and you know, the idea that you're the only source of potentially valid religious law is the civil magistrate. The English theorists who and, you know, and Dutch theorists who developed that drew that from their reading of like early Jewish history. I think like more or less incorrect reading, but still from, you know, they they were drawing this from Josephus. Right. But what's interesting is like you kind of look back in the first century and like, yes, this is Herod's great innovation. Like I'm going to be in charge of picking the high priest. Huge mistake. Really terrible. But one thing that this kind of leads me to is so people People often refer to, you know, my community, the Jewish people, as people of the book. Um, and they generally think of us, not without justification, in fact, we're actually pretty proud of this, as a people who are almost, like, textually obsessed. But at the same time, Jewish intellectual history's self-conception, which fewer people know about, is that textuality is actually, like, an unfortunate concession to the vicissitudes of history. So originally, and in fact, you know, we know this to have been the case until at least the 8th century, and in some places even longer— is that Jewish intellectual tradition was self-consciously oral. And the classical sources portray the eventual textualization of the tradition as a decision that was very, you know, it was made under duress. Like, ideally, you'd keep the oral tradition oral, but since it was in danger of being lost, we wrote it down. So the reason I bring this up is because I feel like this sense of orality feels super foreign to contemporary American culture. Like, the one serious large-scale experiment with orality in social media, for example, Clubhouse seems to have been a failure, like burned really hot for a little, for like a hot, you know, a hot minute and then it was over. Now, in your case, 
you really straddle the boundary between textuality and orality, right? So on the one hand, you're a scholar with great expertise in literature, textual argumentation. And at the same time, you're a podcaster, like a relentlessly oral medium. So how do you see both the potential and limits of orality in, in our culture? Well, I mean, I'm just speaking personally now. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an accidental podcaster, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> and the only reason that I can, and I never thought I would keep doing it. Um, I started the podcast because I had this pile of money that I unexpectedly needed to spend. And I stupidly thought a podcast would be a good way to spend money. It's not. It's like, <laughs> so, so like the whole, the whole setup was uh, in some sense, a mistake from the beginning. Um, but what happened was, so, so the, I started podcasting in 2018 and it was pretty sporadic, but then during the plague, um, it got popular. It was like people were home and bored and a few, a few key people with a large audience decided that they liked my podcast. And so it ended up becoming a popular thing. And then I had to make this decision. Well, I mean, am I going to keep doing this? Obviously, I decided to keep doing it. But the transition from mostly being a writer to podcasting and then uh, giving a lot of lectures, that hasn't been a super easy transition for me. And I've had to work a lot on, you know, the way that I sound. So trying to suppress certain verbal tics and the the interesting thing is that the more comfortable I am with the person that I'm talking to, the more likely I am to express these verbal tics because you can because it's almost like I've put my guard down and I'm not being hyper aware. And I end up sounding I end up sounding less smart. I mean, that's sort of the the net effect. Um, and then my audio producer has more work that he has to do. But I think for me, the benefit of the podcasting medium in particular, as opposed to a lecture or even just teaching, right, which is which is also largely oral, is that it's a conversation. So my podcast, like your podcast, isn't scripted. So you didn't give me any questions in advance. You didn't say like, this is how it's going to go. It's not rehearsed. <laughs> and I mean... So for me, I didn't exactly know this going in, but I just sort of discovered it along the way. But for me, actually, that's kind of the essence of the podcast at this point is you just have two people who are trying to help one another see something that's true and important and beautiful and a work of art. And and there and there's a kind of natural trust that has to be between these two people, right? If they're going to get anywhere in a conversation and like that kind of give and take and what about this? And, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I have learned so much from just allowing this kind of natural dialectic to just, just do its thing. And, and I think that that's really, that's why the podcast has become popular is that what it puts forward is humanistic dialogue, right? So just, just two people who are trying to figure out a text together because they both think that something is at stake there. And, it, and it's like a wonderful thing. 
right? And you don't get that. I just, I don't think you can replicate that in the classroom. Or maybe if you were a much better teacher than me, you could replicate it in the classroom. And, but I think one reason why you can't replicate it in the classroom is because they're just all these people. So you can try to, there's something about just two people sitting down <laughs> and trying to figure it out together that I think is is really wonderful. It's really human and it's really important. And I think that it's incredibly important now because people don't see that happening, right? They no longer even see this as a possibility for themselves, like having these kinds of conversations. I mean, for me, these were the, this was my whole like undergrad experience. This is why I loved college, right? Is that I was just having conversations like this all the time with everyone. And I think that sadly, in some sense, we've lost that. And I think there are all kinds of reasons why we've lost it. I think some of it is that people are just afraid to be vulnerable. I think they're afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or that they're, they're going to look dumb or that like, I don't know, you know, some, some there's just like a lot of self-censorship. And I also think that people just somehow, they don't see anyone having these conversations. They don't themselves know how to engage in them. And so I think for me, something that I've found along the way and podcasting is that I've realized it's incredibly important to model this kind of conversation for young people and to invite them into it, right? Like you, you actually can have these conversations and they're really fantastic and wonderful. And if you're being in any way educated at your university, you're being initiate, initiated into, into this practice, right? And so I think for me, that's the benefit of the oral medium is that you can just put that out there for people as like, see, isn't this good? Don't you want to do this, right? Maybe you should take a philosophy class. Maybe you should read the, you know, maybe you should read the Bible. Maybe you should be thinking about these things, but don't just think about them on your own, right? Um, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is just show people what intellectual friendship looks like, because I think it's been lost. And I think that's so sad, you know, because those are really those are the best kinds of friends. Oh, I love it. There, there's one of my favorite expressions in uh, Talmudic literature in Aramaic is Ochavrusa Omisusa, which colloquially translates to give me a study partner or give me death. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that word for study partner, which is a really adversarial relationship, is is the same root as the word for friend. And it's that sense of intellectual friendship that's so, so powerful. Okay, so my my last question for you, one thinker that actually I first encountered to my shame, uh, I just, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen her before, but I first encountered her in your writing, uh, whom I've now become really interested in is Iris Murdoch, the British moral philosopher. Why is she important for figuring out, speaking of higher education, why is she important for figuring out what higher education is really for? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, Iris Murdoch was like, you know, a communist, atheist. I mean, you wouldn't think that this would be somebody who thought that I would be incredibly drawn to, but she's just a very good philosopher. And I think that 
and friends with like a bunch of Catholics. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as all right thinking people are. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, she, yeah, she was really good friends with Roger Scruton, which I think really surprises people. Uh, but, but they were quite close friends and, and I love that. So to me, what, what has been a revelation in reading Iris Murdoch is the way that she prioritizes contemplation in terms of not just living a good life, but acquiring and exercising virtue. And I think that what you get from her writing is a way of understanding the contemplative life that it is a very everyday sort of thing, right? I think that um, one, we have completely lost the idea that the contemplative life is the best sort of life, which which was just totally taken for granted, right? In the perennial philosophy, it was just like a no brainer. And so I think what you get in Iris Murdoch is a very compelling account of contemplation that is just really beautiful and striking. And it's an everyday thing. It's something that frankly, an illiterate person could do. And I think that's really important because you have to think like most people from most human history were illiterate. And like, it would be weird to think that they just like had no chance of flourishing. Well, that would just be like an impossible thought, I think. Um, and for me as a Christian, it's like, who's Jesus like palling around with? It's like fishermen. You know, he's not going to... <laughs> He's not going to the scholars and being like, okay, help me, help me write like the one great treatise. So that to me is what's so, uh, so powerful about her writing is, and, and people will say, well, yeah, she's a Platonist. And I think to some extent that's true, but I also think it's a little bit misleading. And one thing that I've been writing a lot about is kind of bringing what Aristotle says about practical wisdom and perception into conversation with what Iris Murdoch says about contemplation, right? Because, you know, her writing is suffused with this idea of vision and moral vision. And really the main work in the moral life is coming to see properly, to really see people, for example, in the right way. And that that is a task, right? That that's, that's not something that's just given. That's something that you have to cultivate. You have to cultivate a proper vision, but that that's really the, what you need. And of course, contemplation is, was always conceived as a kind of vision, right? It's not figuring stuff out. It's not study in the sense of like calculating or inferring. It's intuiting, it's vision, it's seeing. And and so for me, it's just, it's been a total revelation. I came to Iris Murdoch late. So I was not reading her in grad school. Um, I started reading her very seriously, maybe six years ago. And I just thought, man, this is great. And also Simone Weil, I think they're very close. And all their work on, on attention and contemplation and vision, um, it's incredibly important and it's good. Uh, it's, it's some good stuff. So I'm glad you're reading it. Highly recommend it. And like I said, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> oh, oh, Felix Culpa. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So I get to ask you a question now, right? Let's do it. I'm so excited. Okay. So we agree that the Bible is literature, right? Um, and it's great literature, right? So don't you think then that the Bible should be taught in school as great literature, right? So not in the sense of Sunday school, but just as great literature because people no longer know the Bible. I mean, I supposedly live in the Bible belt. People don't know it. So like when I'm teaching, I I was teaching a class on the problem of evil and I kept talking about Job and people didn't know. They're like, what? Well, who's that? And I'm just Are like, you mispronouncing job. Yeah, right. right. Joe Bluth. I know, right. right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who also is one of the great characters of all time, yeah. by the way. I mean, let's not let's not knock him. He's amazing. Exactly. And no, no, no disrespect intended to George Oscar. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think this whole I mean, it's it's really been lost. And and I think it's a I, I just think it's a profound loss and there has to be some way of, of addressing this. I mean, it just seems to me to be a part of being well-educated that you would know the Bible is literature. So I want you to weigh in on this. I think that, first of all, the I think the proposition is, is obviously correct. And I, I'm almost like, therefore, more interested in what's preventing it or or even meaning if there were a consensus around doing this, what obstacles would stand in our way still. But to address the first point, a a great teacher of mine, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, once expressed this in the context of the idea that secular Jews or Israelis should engage with the Talmud and study the Talmud, which until relatively recently was controversial. Uh, Now there's there's a ton of cultural energy behind it, which is really exciting. You know, and at the same time, you know, this is an audience that doesn't take the Talmud seriously as a guide to life as I do. Uh, And so the question would come up is, you know, is there something weird about reading, you know, a book that self-consciously intends to be read prescriptively and normatively uh, and reading it just as literature, not also as literature, but just as literature? Like, is there something weird or icky about that? And his response, which was so, I thought, so insightful, was the Jews should not take the Talmud any less seriously than the French take Voltaire, which is to say, in order to actually be a serious person of French identity, there's a whole, whether you want to call it a canon or not, there's a whole pantheon of writers that you need to take seriously, Uh, writers, poets, lyricists, political fingers. And if you don't, then there's something deficient in your Frenchness. And in the context of America, America is uh, just as a political experiment, as a, as a, civic proposition is entirely incoherent without the influence of the Bible. And so purely just like on good civic grounds, you should study the Bible in the same way that you, at the least in the same way as you study the Federalist Papers. Daniel Dreisbach, uh, who has a wonderful book on the Bible and the political thought of the early founders, referred to this study that was in in one of these journals of like sociology and statistics or something like that, where someone actually did the work of computing or tabulating and then and, and tallying up the various sources that the figures in the founding era referred to, you know, Locke, Rousseau, etc. And by far, the source that is referred to most often by political thinkers, and again, even if you just exclude all sermons that were given in that era, is the book of Deuteronomy. So it seems... It seems almost impossible to me to understand the American experiment as such without having some basic literacy in the Bible. Like, it just would be an absurd problem. You could barely understand 
Barack Obama without understanding the Bible, let alone George Washington or Adams or Frederick Douglass or anybody or Martin Luther King Jr. at, at all or anything else. Right. And I think and I think this used to be common sense. So like I I had literary aspirations as a teen and, you know, my AP English teacher was like, you need to know the Bible like you don't know the Bible and you're not going to get anywhere unless you study it. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. (laughs) Right. Like just purely as a as a civic proposition. Well, I mean, yeah, she was just like, you're not going to understand what's going on. I mean, you just, you need to know it is like your inheritance. She's like, you don't have to believe it, obviously. She's like, I don't believe it, but you know, you have to know it. And it's so interesting to me that even saying that is somehow controversial. I mean, it just seems so uncontroversially true to me that any so-called great books or Western Civ or whatever you want to call it, just core text that's like generic enough to not frighten anyone core text, you're obviously going to have to have a lot of the Bible in there. Because I mean, otherwise, how are you going to read Milton? How are you going to read Shakespeare? How are you going to look at most of Western art and, and, and yeah, politics? Like, you have to know these stories. You have to know who these kings are. You have to know, like, you know, uh, and I'm not saying teach it like it's Sunday school, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying teach it as literature, which is what it is. Like, even to take a really modern example, like, you can't understand Barack Obama's politics, you know, like the politics of hope, or yes, we can. You can't understand, or the Joshua generation. I mean, that's a, what do you even think the Joshua generation is referring to if you don't read the Bible? But you can't understand a politics of hope without understanding Martin Luther King Jr. And you certainly can't understand anything Martin Luther King Jr. is doing without understanding, without reading the books of Exodus, Jeremiah, Amos. And you can't understand the concept of hope at all without understanding teleology, which is something that the Bible introduces to human civilization. So just genealogically speaking, it's impossible to under, to like make sense of 2010 decade politics without reading the Bible, I think. But my worry would be that even if we wanted to implement this, and you you would have a better perspective on this than I would from the vantage point of a department like, you know, of a of a field like philosophy, you know, or the humanities in general. But my perception from within the world of religious studies academia, which is where my training is, is that the field of biblical studies has become like so much of the humanities, just so atrophied and impoverished and so obsessed with theory and genealogy and and theories about theories about theories that reading the bible just seriously as a as a book of literature the way once upon a time we would have read the inferno or don quixote or romeo and juliet whatever it is just reading the bible that way like how many people are actually trained to read let alone teach that way the answer is very few Biblical studies academia is not producing people who are equipped to read the Bible seriously, I think is a huge problem. And so the question is, how would you and who would implement this, even if we could marshal the cultural energy behind it? That's something I worry about as a practical matter. My hope would be that the solution is, you know, the more we kind of speak or tweet these communities into being, as it were, through just publicly take like part of what I try to do on Twitter and thankfully you know at least this resonates with people if my basketball hot takes weren't working so at least my bible hot takes are right but like 
what I think has been so cool is just to discover like a whole constituency of people who are like, yes, I would love to explore the literary artistry of this work that's really important. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the answer to your question is that, you know, in order for these changes to happen, there need to be institutional changes and there need to be new institutions. And I think that's good and exciting. And I think that the people who are interested in in bringing this about, people who are interested in the idea that the university needs to redevote itself in a serious way to general liberal arts. And I, I personally think that universities can do both if they really want to, right? It's not going to happen by accident. But if you really want to do both, if you want to have a serious integrated, holistic, general liberal arts education, and you want to do research, right? That's great. You can do both, but you have to recognize that right now you're, you're really only doing the research thing and that general ed is a, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. I think we should just be able to say that it's a watered down incoherent mess. And that's where we need the work and the reflection. And we do need different training. I mean, my teaching training was basically non-existent. I mean, I had to go to some mandatory, like, you know, don't break the law trainings, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, But even that was really thin. I'm sure that's thicker now. But, you know, I wasn't really trained to teach philosophy well. I mean, I just was kind of thrown out there. And I think for a while I was just legitimately doing it terribly. And and the perception, like, I don't know if this is true in your field, but like, isn't the perception in academia that teaching classes, especially undergrad classes, is like low status? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, you know, what's the ideal? Get a cushy endowed chair where you don't even interact with undergrads. Right, right. right. So, um, I mean, that's when you've really made it. And I think that, you know, there are people like Zena Hitz and Roosevelt Montas um, and some other figures who are really making the case for the liberal arts, you know, in a in a more old fashioned, robust sense. I think we need more people making that case. But we also need universities and university administrators who are willing to invest in this in a serious way. Not in a like, oh, we've got this one class over here kind of way. No, a serious way so that you are training, right? You, you are actually training people to teach in, in a different way. I think it would have to be in a different, more coherent way. And it's not happening now. And, you know, on the one hand, that's unfortunate. But on the other hand, right, the humanities are in crisis and you should never let a crisis go to waste, right? So, yeah, exactly. so there's like a there's like an opportunity here, and there are all sorts of things you can do. I mean, I have my podcast that's like a small, tiny thing, but it but it's interesting. It's had these real ripple effects, and so you know you, you can start somewhere. But I am I am obligated to hope, <laughs> so I'm a I'm a hopeful person. Um, and I really do hope, Ari, by the way, the, the barbarians are at the gate. My my <laughs> children are like literally trying to break down the door. But before we go. Everyone's welcome on the pod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You haven't met my five-year-old. But, um, but actually, you probably have. 
Because in our... I, by the way, I actually, I actually may have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ari used to be my Hebrew teacher. I was a failure. But I'm going to try again, by the way. I'm just... I love I'm it. I'm going to try again. I, fa- I fail most important things the first time, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, I, I hope I'll just put this out there publicly. Please come on the podcast to talk about some some part of the Hebrew Bible. Like we could totally do Genesis. You know, I've taught Genesis and and it would be amazing to do it. But honestly, I would be up for anything with you. So this this podcast interview was a thinly veiled scam to get my way onto sacred and profane love. So I hope it worked. It worked. <laughs> Good job. Oh my God. Jen, thank you so, so, so much for coming on this podcast. You're like a celebrity guest. This was so awesome. I'm really psyched that you came on and you were incredible. <laughs> I'm I'm like your number one fan, Ari. Really. It's Mutual Admiration Society. Thank you so much. <laughs> As the locus for the invention of mass media, American culture stands as a major turning point in the history of storytelling. But why exactly are stories important? And what exactly makes stories so powerful? I loved Jen's answer, that stories in whatever medium, whether literature, poetry, painting, and beyond, help us better understand the reality and complexity of what it means to live a good life. I mean, true, we have to do the work of figuring out what the good life should be. But if we want, in my grandfather's words, to do something about it, well, that's where literature and the arts comes in. So go to an art gallery, read a sonnet, or honestly, watch a movie or a TV show and take it seriously as a piece of art. It's a great way to watch The Office, for example. Or go read a book. Or, as Jen and I talked about at the end, read the book. Your life, and just as importantly, the lives of your fellow members of society will be all the richer for it. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shot podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 